uh, on the right-hand side, you'll see uh, some information about Wes and his wife, and then all the way down to their youngest, uh, Aiden. And uh, I know Wes is going to uh, have a little interview with Aiden, going to talk about a few things. But Wes, before, I'm going to interview you. Oh, great. Good, good. <laughs> he doesn't know this until just now. Uh, Wes, you grew up here in Marquette, is that correct? Yeah, or, my latter years, high school years. High school? Okay. Latter part of high school and then okay. back and forth from university. Okay. And uh, when, did, when did you feel called of the Lord to, first of all, for salvation and then into ministry? Yeah, I was raised in such a lovely, wonderful, Christ-centered home. My parents were missionaries in Congo, Africa, so I had all that, but I was quite a rebellious missionary child. But at age 17, really met Jesus personally through young people who uh, really challenged me uh, through music, and uh, that grew. As I went on to study music in an undergrad way, I just found myself in more and more in leadership in Christian fellowship groups in the Boston area, and began to give me an inkling that maybe some sort of uh, ministry uh, leadership would be what God had, and that eventuated that way. Okay, great. I, I know that sometimes, I know in my case, being called into ministry, can sometimes you feel inadequate and you feel like, why me, God? Because I, I don't feel... Did, did you ever feel that way, or have you always just kind of known that God has had his hand and is leading you into some sort of ministry? No, I'm just like you, full, okay. of, full of thoughts about how can I do this, who am I, right. very inadequate, no matter how much training you get or education, it just helps you see how much you have to learn yeah. along the way, and discipleship is just every day something new. So I stand up here today feeling very much the weaknesses I bring, not strengths. Well, I was thinking of that, and I was thinking of you as we sang that song, Make Me a Servant, and that's what we all need to be as a servant, and you are a servant. We appreciate your ministry and uh, what you're doing. I always love reading your uh, emails, you, the things that you send about your ministry and the things that are going on, and I'm really anxious to see kind of what uh, Aiden's perspective has been on all of that, so yeah. I'm going to turn it over to you, and thank, thank you, you, and Aiden, for being here. appreciate you both, and... Uh, I look forward to hearing what you Thanks so much. I'll just turn me on here. There we go. Yeah, it's a great joy to be with you. Uh, I've been here a number of other times, and uh, of course, as Hank brought out, uh, spent some good years here in Marquette and just love that. Uh, this is a unique church in that it supports three brothers. Uh, myself and my brother Russell, who's a missionary surgeon in Kenya, and my brother Joel, who's a missionary academic in uh, Germany, teaches New Testament. And I always like to, when, when uh, I'm with my brothers, I love it when we're introduced this way. Joel, of course, is the smartest. He's just unbelievably brainy. Russell is the hardest working. That's undoubtedly true. But I'm the best looking, <laughs> by far. So I'm pleased to be up here, and you can see that when you... I think Russell was here recently, and Joel will be here later, so you can verify the truth of that. We thought we'd begin, uh, before we entered into the biblical side of what we want to bring today, 
it might help you to think uh, about what we're doing through the eyes of my son Aidan. He's our youngest, youngest of five. We moved to Scotland, Glasgow, and we work with a now a church that's all uh, asylum-seeking refugee people from Muslim backgrounds. And God is doing amazing things. I'll tell you a little bit about that in the midst of the uh, message today. But I thought it might just help you to have uh, Aidan share. He was almost one year old when we moved there, so he's had his whole life in Scotland. And America is a place to come for holiday and uh, places like Marquette. Um, so Aidan, I just want to ask you a couple questions and you can stand right up close to this. Maybe it'd help everybody here to have you just answer, in what ways has God used growing up in Scotland in your life, do you think? Um, I think he's challenged me in a lot of ways. Um, growing up in high school, it's pretty much been a completely secular experience. Um, so yeah, I've had to struggle with a lot of chats with friends about why I'm a Christian, and they completely disagree. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's been really good. Um, I think it's made my faith stronger in a lot of ways, and it's given me the opportunity to explore countries nearby in Europe, and um, yeah, it's been pretty amazing. Yeah, one of the perks is where we are in Glasgow, Scotland, it's quite easy to get all over Europe. So he often, he has very good friends who are missionary children in the same mission that we're with called Communitas International. And, uh, they are a German family who ministered in Sweden. So the children, the whole family, uh, came and worked with us to work on their English. And, of course, their mother tongue is German, and now they're all fluent in Swedish, trilingual family. But their kids are the same age. And he'll often, a couple times a year, fly to Gothenburg, Sweden, for maybe 35, 40 pounds round trip, which would be about... Uh, $50, something like that, $55. Um, maybe then also you could offer, what is your perspective on what God is doing right now in our, our church with all these Muslim background people? is called the Upper Room, and they all come from Muslim backgrounds. What, what is your perspective on what's happening there? Um, I think it's a safe place for them um, to come from awful oppression in their home country and um, they've been fleeing on the back of trucks for two weeks or whatever. They have a bunch of different stories. Um, and then they, they come to the UK and either they're, you know, kind of despised by um, locals or they just don't want to be there and it's, it's not comfortable for them at all. Um, and I think our church offers them a kind of home where there's other like-minded people and um, and coming from a Muslim background to hear the teachings of Jesus um, where they, they can find such freedom and peace. I think they really are attracted to that. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a really good time in their life, I think, to, mm -hmm. to come into our church. Great. Well, we'd invite you in between services and at any point, if you want to Query Aiden in any way, he'd be happy to do that and give you the honest scope on what we do from his perspective. 
So I just want to first pray for him and his future. He came along with me on this journey to uh, look at universities and colleges. He's considering both schools here in the U.S. and Scottish universities. So I really want to pray for him, and I'll then pray as we enter into God's Word in just a moment. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for Aidan, and I'm so proud of him, and I'm so glad he's with me. And just seeing what you have done in his life over the years and his ongoing passion to follow Christ, even in a very secular city where there's not been much encouragement other than his family and local ministry. So I ask you to bless him and encourage him and open the way in terms of university uh, choices for the future. And his gap year, well, he'll spend time in Kenya and France, uh, really uh, make that a special growing educational and encounter with you time. I pray for that. And I pray as we come to the scripture now that you just allow us to really enter into your truths and that the Holy Spirit would be our guide, our counselor, our teacher to help us understand what you want to say to each of us as well as collectively this morning. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, I want to uh, begin this morning with a story that really is a story of sorrow, comfort, and miracle. Some of you who receive our monthly updates will know a bit about this story that on Easter Sunday of this year, April 1, our oldest daughter, Heather, who lives in Glasgow close to us, uh, was to give birth to her sixth child. She's an amazing young woman, 30 years old and six children. She started kind of young, but has been producing regularly. <laughs> We're so proud of her. But this one, there were complications, and on Easter morning at about 4.30 in the morning, a, an emergency cesarean was decided in the baby because the baby's heartbeat was in and out, and uh, the baby was born. Here's a photo of her, I think. You can do it there. There we go. The baby was uh, born with no heartbeat and no breathing at all. The umbilical cord was wrapped around its neck four times. And so when she was born, her name is Shiloh, she had no heartbeat and was 10 minutes without any breathing. They worked and worked and worked. And finally, after 10, between 10 and 11 minutes, they got a heartbeat going and restored breathing. They think that she as well had um, not enough oxygen to the brain, even in utero, due to the tightness of the cord four times around her neck in utero. So there's her on your left with Heather just uh, uh, the day she was born. We began to pray and invite prayers in many ways that God would override the 
expected outcome of severe brain damage with that much loss of oxygen first 10 minutes. It's a way, way too long, of course. She was in uh, neonatal care for 19 days, and little by little, one by one, God was answering prayers in miraculous ways, such that she survived, such that all the predictions that she would likely be blind, deaf, and dumb uh, have not proven true, that uh, they really didn't even know whether simple reflexes that your brain controls would, would kick in at all, things like swallowing. So the baby was being fed intravenously through a tube through the nose into the stomach, but we prayed and prayed and prayed and invited prayer around the world, and my daughter Heather was insistent that God was doing something and so kept putting her little finger in the baby's mouth to see if she would suck. And sure enough, after a little while, she began to suck and then she insisted against all the medical community's desires that they allow her to attempt to breastfeed and she did and the baby took to that within an hour or so quite easily and then they were able to bring her home. An amazing story of and it's ongoing. Uh, just before we left, the next milestone was, they said, to look for emotive kind of response. And one of the ways you see that is when a baby at the proper development time, like one month old or six weeks old, begins to respond to you with smiles. And sure enough, little Shiloh began to do that. There was no damage that was prohibiting that. There's still ways to go where checking on her hearing is questionable. They, she tracks with you with her vision, so it, to all appearances it looks like she's absolutely seeing, but we don't know if that's blurred or what, but we're trusting God. And so there on the far right is Heather and her, her little brood of ducklings. She, she goes all over Glasgow, they have no car, so it's all on buses and trains and the underground uh, subway. And she hauls them everywhere. And there's a little one attached to her and her five others. Um, in the midst of that miracle story was included the deep sense of comfort, not only from prayers around the world, but particularly the people in Upper Room Church who themselves come desperately in need of comfort through the traumas of fleeing a country where they're severely oppressed. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that with just a couple stories in a little bit. These dear people just surrounded us with their weeping prayers for little Shiloh. And with nothing of their own would come by with food gifts and flowers, spending 10 pounds on flowers when they only have 35 pounds a week to live on themselves. And uh, just amazing gestures of their sense of providing us support and love. My wife and I determined that in this setting we were not going to keep this at all private, but share it with them, even though their sorts of stories 
are on a scale are seemingly much more severe. They shared in the depth of our sorrow and prayers for miracles. In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, the Bible refers to these sorts of things as afflictions or hardships of different kinds. And more so, the Bible offers us the right perspective on them so as to understand these afflictions when they come into our lives and to deal with them better. So our experience has only allowed us to have some little way of identifying with Muslim background refugees and the incredible need of comfort that they come with. So I'd like us to read the passage now. If we could move that on. I don't know if that is working, but from 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 7, the Apostle Paul addresses this. This is the New American Standard Version. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. I think the first thing to note in the Bible's teaching here is the obvious that affliction exists for those who follow Jesus. We are not immune. We are not set apart from those. They are a reality. This is clear, of course, in verse 4 of the passage when it says that God comforts us in all our affliction. And we take note of how it is labeled by Paul with such blatant honesty when he refers to it as all and any affliction. Not singular or even one or two instances maybe, but indicating numerous experiences as we follow Christ as all afflictions. And again later in verse for it again labels it so honestly as any affliction. It is the repeated Greek word passe, and when it is repeated like that, it usually means all in the first instance and any in the second. So that it is honestly forewarning us to be prepared for not just numerous afflictions, 
but even different types of affliction, different ways that they may come into our lives so that the sorrow we've been dealing with, the deep grief of a little one born with such serious conditions, and even though the miracle seems to be taking place, deep grief as to what the future might hold. And yet, comparatively to my friends in Upper Room, whose stories of trauma make this seem rather insignificant. But God says, no, all and any affliction, whatever it might be, he cares. And so I want to tell you about some of my friends and some of the stories of quite extreme affliction that they come with when they come into the folds of this family we call the Upper Room Jesus Family. That's how we refer to our church, the Upper Room Jesus Family. Marco, he began coming to the Upper Room in about August, late August of last year, just August of 2017. He has now become a very open, uh, declaring his love and faith in Jesus very much like his smile seems to suggest. But when he first came and I got to know him, he passed on the story that he had already been in Glasgow an entire year before I ever met him, before I ever came to the Upper Room Jesus family, because he said I was in a flat with four other Muslim background ref refugees, and he told me I could not hardly leave my flat, and he described it in his Kurdish language, he's Kurdish, as he was all wrapped in up on himself, he, he was trying to describe he could not get himself out of his flat because he was in a fetal position, so overcome with with uh, grief and depression and really fear. Because being Kurdish, the Kurdish peoples, you know, span over four different nations, Iran, Iraq, a bit of Turkey, and a bit of northern Syria. And his Kurdish village was in the northern part of Syria, where ISIS is very rampant. And so his story was one of the, the best part of it, he said, was that I did not have to witness the beheadings of my mother and father and brother. I only came later and saw the evidence of decapitated bodies of my parents and brother. And he knew they would be looking for him because they were not devout enough Muslims. And so he fled and came 
and he began coming to Upper Room. And his favorite part of the Bible is the Gospel of Luke, because the very first bit in the Bible he read from a Kurdish Bible we gave him, he just happened to turn to Luke 16, and it's the parable-like story of Jesus, of a rich man and a guy named Lazarus who flew to the bosom of Abraham. And his Muslim background talked often about the bosom of Abraham. And he fell in love with the person of Jesus who raises up a Lazarus and leaves the rich man in a different place and not even named. That's the kind of affliction he brings. Sarah is a wonderful woman, but she fled because there is a fatwa, which is a death sentence from the local mosque imam instituted by her father and her uncle upon her because she was accused of an adulterous relationship. She freely admits that she was in such a relationship because she had been forced to marry when she was 16, an older uncle of 38, marrying a 16-year-old, and he was a drug addict and beat her many times. So finally, in a, being beaten severely, bleeding profusely, she told of trying to get to the hospital and a taxi driver picked her up and took her and then befriended her visitor and they began a romantic relationship. And she says, yes, I was in wrong, I was in sin, but I was desperate and a man showed me kindness and love rather than abuse. But I was wrong, she says, but I just don't believe I should be stoned to death. The fatwa instituted by the local imam, her father and her uncle, would be bringing her back to Iran to be stoned. That is the affliction Sarah brings. And yet she has met Jesus in such real ways and just as a vibrant testimony for Christ. I think this is why the text in this passage is broad, specifying all and any affliction. Because the afflictions you bring matter to God, whether they seem in comparison to these two or even Shiloh, I wrestle with what is my affliction compared to these? But God says, no, they all matter, all and any. The afflictions you're facing right now, whatever they may be, God, according to Paul, takes deep concern for them. And of course, the Bible here directly states that for disciples of Jesus, these various afflictions are our ways of sharing, he says, in the sufferings of Christ. 
Following Jesus is not ever taught to be a road of ease and relaxation, but it shares in the very suffering of Jesus himself. Do you see that with me in verse 5? For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours, we like to skip over those bits. The sufferings of Christ are ours. So also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But obviously the real point of the passage is to draw our attention to what is God's provision in the midst of such affliction. And what that is is mentioned all throughout this passage, in fact, ten times in these short five verses. And it is comfort. Verse 3, referring to God of all comfort. Verse 4, God who comforts us. Verse 4 again, we ourselves are comforted by God. And then again and again and again, ten separate times this root word, verb and noun, comfort. And if you study it a wee bit, it means two sides to it, soothing as like a mother who comforts a child offering a soothing touch. I remember watching Heather with her little Shiloh. For five days she couldn't even hold her baby, but she could reach in and soothe her with a hand on the cheek or the forehead. Comfort, soothing like a mother. It also means encouragement as in like a father might encourage a child who is struggling when things are hard. You can go, you can do it, keep at it. Soothing and encouragement. And as you read the passage carefully, we see that it tells us about two very important aspects of this comfort. The first is that it is derived from God's very own character. It erupts out of the being, the character of God himself. As we read in the very opening, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. This is who he is in his being. It's not just incidental, it's central to the character of God, to comfort those in need. And the second is what we read at the end of verse 5 when it says, so also our comfort, isn't this great, is abundant through Christ. This comfort, soothing and encouragement because of Christ is not, as they would say in Scotland, just a wee little bit. It is abundant, fulfilling, meeting you where you are. But now, as we go on, let's read again, just very carefully, just verses 4 to 6. God, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective <coughs> in the patient enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. This part of the passage I want to suggest to us all is hugely important because it is telling us that there is not just some arbitrary thing happening when we suffer afflictions, but there is purpose and meaning in it for those who share in the sufferings of Jesus. It's not just by chance or arbitrary, but God instills hardship, no matter what it is, with meaning and even purpose. Now this does not suggest at all, in my understanding theologically, that God is the one who instills affliction or inflicts affliction, but God takes it and gives it meaning and purpose. He is not one who would inflict evil, but he can instill the worst sorts of evil with meaning and purpose and redeem it. Here it says he allows us this in order to pass on comfort to others, as we read in verse 4, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. And in fact, the passage goes so far as to say, did you notice this? Don't overlook it, that God actually uses our affliction for the salvation of others and maybe even ourselves. We read that at the beginning of verse 6, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. There is understandably debate in the midst of New Testament scholarship as to what this actually means, but most New Testament exegetes concur that it is referring to the power of personal testimony that is validated and made credible when people back up their claims to faith in Christ with happily being willing to pay the price, even with suffering or afflictions of various sorts, so much so that it leads to the actual salvation of others, the power of testimony. When you continue to follow and be faithful to Jesus even in the hardest of affliction. Salvation comes to others. And then finally, I just want to conclude with something I think we cannot overlook. The passage offers us what are very clearly healthy perspectives when we are in some of the many and varied afflictions caused by the fallen and evil world around us. 
One of these is that we can actually experience what the Apostle Paul identifies here as firmly grounded hope. In verse 7, do you see that? And our hope for you is firmly grounded. It is the Greek idea of bebeos that means hope that is not limited to post-mortem eternity, good as that is, but hope that is grounded, meaning it is here, now, immediate, present-day hope, firmly grounded because it is actually material, because affliction for those who happily share in the sufferings of Christ is not pointless, but purposeful and meaningful. Thus, hope that is now. And another healthy perspective that I'm finding so important in the work we do is that we are not meant to deal with sufferings and afflictions on our own. But then in the church, the body of Christ, we share these hard loads together. Do you see that in verse 7? It goes on to declare, our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. I find that people in the West, Europe, North America, are so individualistic, so into our own privacy that we really shy away from sharing openly and transparently. Oh, we'll share the good things, the successes and the joys, but we get very private when it comes to pains and sorrows. But the text here is very communal, like Paul in his Hebrew background. We share together. And that is why my wife Cindy and I were determined with what was happening with little Shiloh that we would transparently be open and weep and cry with our brothers and sisters as they shared with us their comfort. And then last, we cannot possibly overlook the entire context for this passage set for us way back at the beginning in verse 3 when it says, Blessed be God, or praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what, no matter all or any affliction as disciples of Jesus, we are defined by praising God, blessing God in the midst, in the midst of any and all challenges and afflictions. As Paul says elsewhere, God asks us, invites us to give thanks in all things. Not for all things, but in the midst of everything, we turn our attention and worship and praise and bless. Blessed be God. And that leads us now to the end of the story with Sarah and Marco. This ties in absolutely 100% to the end of the story. 
because Sarah and Marco unusually, although it shouldn't be unusual at all, are blessing God. That their severe, severe afflictions have led them to Christ. And so the end of the story is that these two, along with 26 others, 28 Muslim background people from the upper room Jesus family, the day we return, 31st of May, just Thursday coming, will be baptized. And they join them. 28 people, all with very similar stories. But affliction has resulted in salvation. I don't think God inflicted such evil upon them. But I believe God instills their affliction with purpose and meaning. So in essence, this Bible passage in the end, I don't think is at all about affliction, although that word appears quite often. But this passage is really all about God himself, who meets us in our afflictions. How we understand God, who is in the midst of it all, as verse 3 opens, the God of all comfort. That's who he is. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. And I pray for Marco and Sarah, so many like them. Pray for these 28, including the two of them, to be baptized, that this will just be the beginning of the outworking of your purpose, your meaning for what they've come through. And I pray for each one here. I pray for the various afflictions and hardships. We don't level them. We don't compare them. They're all serious. I pray people here in Bethel would meet you as they discover purpose and meaning in the hardships they face. I pray for Shiloh. That you would touch her. Whether it's a story of complete miracle or answers to prayer along the way, we ask that her life resound to your glory and even the afflictions will be part of a story of salvation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.